Welcome to the Hotspot. I'm your host, Armand Desfouli Today we have a conversation with Mark Phillips, Helium's Vice President of Business Development and one of the company's earliest employees. He goes into great detail about the company's process for bringing new users and device manufacturers onto the network. He outlines the company's strategy and helps me understand Helium's competitors and the challenges that the network faces. He also provides some pretty awesome growth predictions for this year and beyond. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anna. How are you? I'm good. It's, uh, it's really awesome to have you on here. You were the first Helium team member who I really interacted with on a consistent basis. And I think actually you're the first person I pitched this podcast to. I was like, hey, what if, you know, what if I just did a podcast? <laughs> yeah. And you uh, reacted positively. I did, yeah. I mean, you pitched it to me at a time where the community was, was small and growing quickly. And, and you know, the idea that there would be uh, this sort of platform out there from, you know, somebody who wasn't part of Helium Core telling, telling the right story was incredibly appealing. So yeah, I'm happy you did it. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you think I'm telling the right story. <laughs> Trying my best over here. Um, yeah. You were also the first Helium team member that I met in person, which was actually kind of fun because there was a Philly blockchain meetup happening and yeah. you were coming into town to do a presentation at the blockchain meetup. And I just happened to be playing around with coverage mapping. And so I built this little uh, web app. It was like a very simple coverage testing tool. And I showed a demo video where I walked across the city of Philadelphia um, with a LoRa transmitter in my backpack and using my phone's GPS and essentially mapped how strong the signal was to each hotspot along my walk. And it was pretty strong. Like, I don't think I lost coverage for the entire walk, which was very cool. And I created a time-lapse of like a, a, I think I compressed 40 minutes into like um, like one minute or something. But yeah, there, there weren't even that many hotspots. I think there were under 15 hotspots in the whole city of Philadelphia. But I was able to walk from like 20th and Walnut to uh, like third and Locust or something, third and Spruce. And I never lost coverage for any of my packets. So that was pretty yeah. remarkable. I mean, I've done, it's been a healing for know, seven years now and I've done more sort of meetup talks and conference talks and I can remember. Um, but I remember that Philadelphia trip very specifically because uh, uh, I took a, a, an interesting trip out to see a customer in uh, Lancaster. Am I saying that right? Lancaster? Lancaster? Yeah, Lancaster. Uh, yeah. And it was just before COVID really made everyone's life fucking terrible. And it was like the last train trip that I took. Um, but more importantly, I remember getting into the Philadelphia train station. I'm not sure what it's actually called. The, the, the you know, wherever Amtrak hooks up downtown and I had uh, like everybody on Helium's team carries around these like mappers, right? It's like the mappers that we have now are much more sophisticated, uh, but they were just like these crude GPS, you know, enabled LoRaWAN devices similar to what you had. And I remember um, uh, I like had my laptop in my left hand, I had a mapper in my right hand and I'm watching like an earlier version of what is cargo. And I walk, like I'm walking through the train station or the, the, the bus station, I walk outside and I started to get packets and I was like, holy shit, it actually works. Which is not to say that we didn't think it would work, but like you always get that sort of effect. We get it less now because the coverage is growing at a pretty remarkable rate. But, you know, being in a city like Philadelphia with 15, 20 hotspots a year plus ago, um, I'm super cool. Yeah, that was an awesome trip. And your talk was great and the meetup was super good too. Yeah, that was a year ago, wasn't it? That was probably, was it January or February, 2020? I think it was February. Yeah, February. That's incredible. So it was more than a year ago. That's crazy to think about. Yeah, I, I remember as well in the building that we were in, 
I happened to open my coverage app because we were on the like, I don't know, 10th or 20th floor of some yeah, high rise. And I opened my coverage app just to just to see. And we had bought, we had brought, I brought a helium hotspot because you didn't have one with you. So we were like, yeah. you know, we're gonna do a live demo. Um I need we need to have coverage, right? So I brought the hotspot yeah. with me and I plugged it in in some corner, connected it surreptitiously to this <laughs> like shared workspace Wi-Fi. I was like, yeah. I hope this works. And then, you know, lo and behold, I opened the uh, coverage testing tool and there's like five hotspots receiving my packets, which was just like <laughs> pretty mind blowing because, you know, Philly has been a laggard in terms of hotspot adoption. Even now, like we're, um, you know, reward scaling is 1.0 pretty much everywhere. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we're not really, we're not really leading the the pack, although, you know, I'm, I definitely have some announcements coming out soon that uh, will hopefully help with that. It's, it, it is really awesome like to, to just go outside and see it see it work like it's it is unexpected even as a user of the network it's uh like especially if you know the names of the hotspots when there's only a few in town and you you know you walk somewhere and you're like well i'm not going to get any coverage for a few blocks but then you realize that one that's like a mile and a half away is picking up your packets you're just like oh my god yeah. this technology really really works i i i used to have a whole rolodex of the early hotspots that i uh, would refer to by name. I mean, I, I think I've even um, uh, sent people uh, like um, uh, Apple AirPod headphones engraved with hotspot <laughs> names, and like like uh, I sent a, a, a mirror or CEO a, a champagne saver with a hotspot name on it a long time ago, uh, just for kicks. So yeah, it's it never ends. It's fun. I love that. The names is such it's such a key thing for just like making the whole. Uh, experience memorable it was such i'm sure i'm sure it was like a you know a 10 minute idea that someone came up with like oh we should give them yeah names, it was but... like uh do we just automatically name these things like 774xx2551 or do we let people name them themselves and come up with like you know totally random things like armon hotspot six or do we just create this cool you know nice thing it, it flew very it flows very nicely from the public key because it's just a hash of the public key um right. and yeah no it's that was one of the biggest upsides that we did not see coming as a name yeah i'm a huge fan of uh right now docile bone pony is uh <laughs> near me the name is fantastic but it's also just crushing like it provides a stupid amount of coverage in cambridge massachusetts um and it's like deployed beautifully on top of a building it's, it's glorious wow i'll have to look up the pony uh, after this pod um, so I wanted to give the audience a little more about your background and, and how you joined helium you've been with the team for a long long time so like, what were you doing before Helium? And then how'd you get here? And then what's your journey been like since you've been here? Yeah, so uh, I have, I don't know, maybe a typical journey for someone who does BD and, and tech. So my role at Helium is um, Vice President of Business Development. Um, and although Helium has been around for seven years uh, and um, we've raised, I think, 53 million to date, you know, we still very much operate like a startup, which means I have a lot of sort of different roles internally. Um, so Helium, Inc. was founded in, I think, June or July of 2013 by Amir Halim, Sean Carey, and Sean Fanning. Um, Sean Fanning, most people have heard of. Sean Carey was a guy I used to work with at a company called Basho Technologies in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, and so Basho made a database called RIAK, R-I-A-K, which was this open source decentralized database written in Erlang. Um, that's actually where a lot of the Erlang roots in the Helium network come from. Uh, and so Amir and Sean Carey founded the company with, with Sean Fanning. Um, I was working at Basho, living in San Francisco at the time. So I've been with that company for, I think, five or six years at that point, um, running sales engineering and open source community development um, and, and a few other things. And I was asked to, to come take a look at Helium. 
Um, you know, it uses radio, it sends packets. You don't have to know anything about radio. It's IoT, blah, blah, blah. Um, I had no idea what, what all that stuff was about, but I met with Amir and I met with Sean and we sat down and met a few times. And uh, it was clear that although I didn't completely grasp what it was that, that you know, what these guys are building, and, you know, the blockchain wasn't part of it at that point. It was, it was, you know, IoT network built on, you know, known sort of RF modulation um, layered with the, or married with like the cloud layer. Um, it was clear that it was going to be fun as hell. And pretty challenging, so I decided to join. So it was January uh, of 2014, and so um, since then, yeah, I've run business development, which for us has been um, uh, a wild, ridiculous journey. So if you do startup BD, you know that it's not a very concrete role. Like you don't show up at the at the office looking, you know, doing the same exact thing every day. And basically, you're just trying to get big companies to to spend their time with you in an effective way. Essentially, right? You need to figure out ways to to sort of leverage. Um, relationships into making your your product and company a huge success. Um, and so now what I do is I spend time on the three areas where Helium is sort of uh, very focused, which is building coverage, um, building the blockchain infrastructure, and putting more devices on the network. So that's my day-to-day. -day. Would you say that those are split roughly evenly, or is there one that's dominating these days? Um, the coverage is taking, well, well let's see. So the coverage engine, right, which is um, the idea that the blockchain is doing a good job of incentivizing people to deploy coverage. Um, it's, it's save for the fact that the, the hardware supply uh, is still a pain, it's kind of running itself. Meaning, um, you know, people are coming to the community, the community is starting to sort of support itself. Um, we were chatting before this, there's about 14,500 plus people in Discord, many of whom are like super helpful, like just spend many hours a day helping people optimize antennas and pick the right hotspot and, you know, find locations for these things. So, um, you know, I tend to spend more of my time on coverage, working with bigger companies who are looking at like um, deploying 50 to 100 to maybe 200 hotspots across you know, a bunch of real estate, for example, and I'll try to sort of put connections together with them to make sure that they can do the deployment correctly. Um, but more of my time these days is actually being spent on the sensor side of stuff. So um, there is a, a really interesting theme developing where um, larger companies are getting more comfortable with the idea of blockchain-based infrastructure. And a lot of these companies have to happen to be uh, either already in IoT or sensing or getting into the space and so um, they're plotting large device deployments, but integrating coverage deployments at the same time, which to me is so fucking awesome because it means we get to, to fulfill sort of both sides of the network in parallel. When we started you know, two years ago, it was hotspot here, hotspot here, hotspot here, let's fire as many as we can. And now um, we're, we're transitioning to where the people building the coverage are also building out the, the usage requirements of the network, which is like the dream. So yeah, so I'm spending more time um, on the, the sensor piece of stuff and actually a lot on the blockchain stuff too. Um, so, so figuring out, you know, what partnerships are interesting for the Helium Inc and the community to make the sort of proliferation of the Helium blockchain and, you know, the Helium token sort of, um, more integrated into the world in different ways. Love that. Yeah. Uh, I remember that Amir had said to me, one of the biggest challenges in getting sensor deployments is that like when you describe the network to people they don't believe you that it even mm -hmm. exists and so how has that evolved over time because we're at nineteen thousand something hotspots at this recording and it's about to get a whole lot bigger yeah um what's so the the data and the tooling that exists from helium and the community make my job in that respect a lot easier than it used to basically like um 
the, the way that an introduction to helium call goes with like a, you know, a fortune 100 company or a startup, for example, that's looking to do sensor connectivity um, is we talk about their use case. You know, they've got a sensor that's going to send some amount of data that's deployed in a certain area. And then we talk about LoRaWAN and LoRa and how helium is a faithful implementation of LoRaWAN. And then I say, have you done any reading about the blockchain? How familiar are you with how this works? And most of the time it's like medium level of knowledge, if not, you know, less than that. Because these people have jobs to they're building businesses, they don't really have time to read white papers and you know documentation on this stuff. And so at that point, what I do is I pull up Explorer and I pull up Mappers. So explorer.helium.com and mappers.helium.com. And I start with with showing, you know, um, a state channel transaction or a packet transfer transaction where you can see, you know, 700 of the of the 20,000 hotspots transferring data from sensors in like the last 45 minutes. And then I'll narrow in on a city like Chicago or Philadelphia, Los Angeles and mappers and say, listen, uh, it might sound crazy that we have this army of people out there deploying coverage and getting very invested in, in the sort of future of the network. But look, like these are real coverage maps. This is entirely true. I can put you anywhere in Chicago. I can put you anywhere in Los Angeles and it's smaller cities too. Like I can put you pretty much anywhere in Pittsburgh at this point and you can get a, you know, a packet from a sensor through pretty reliably. So um, that conversation has gotten a lot easier. And now what we find ourselves doing um, is a lot more blockchain education, right? So talking about mm. um, you know, how we decouple the LoRaWAN component with the Helium blockchain, how ultimately you know, it's, it's very important to the success of the network and then their use case. But um, you know, I actually just had a call this morning with uh, a company that's transitioning over to us from another LoRaWAN network provider who we won't mention. Um, and uh, at the end of the call, I just said, listen, um, you can care as much about the blockchain as you want um, or as little as you want. But for you, as someone running a business, you're going to pay a very small amount of data to send, you know, um, over a reliable sensor. Uh, and that's pretty much all that matters as far as I can tell. So, uh, yeah, but they're getting easier, the conversations for, um, for deploying sensors. Yeah, so I guess the conversation is now more like, so this whole blockchain thing, you know, if it slows down, am I not going to receive my packets? Because yeah, I well, see that, that as a common misconception. <laughs> that's never gone away. Um, I, I, rather, I don't think that'll ever go away. Because if if you're sort of entry level with blockchain, you know about Bitcoin and you know about Ethereum, and you know that Bitcoin can be slow processing transactions. You know the Ethereum blockchain, you know, can be slow processing transactions. Although I hear there's Ethereum killers out there that are doing a good job of uh, of helping. Uh, yes, yes, there are. <laughs> Um, yeah, and so that, that's fairly straightforward. I mean, we can point to situations where the you know you can go to explore and you can see that the blockchain hasn't processed a block in however many minutes, you know, nine, ten minutes, but there's still packets getting through. Um, so yeah, but that, I don't think that'll go away. Um, that conversation. Yeah, if you have like blockchain knowledge and and common blockchain common sense, is that a thing yet? Sure. You'll understand that like pushing millions of LoRa packets onto a blockchain and storing each packet as a transaction would just be completely impractical anyway. And well, of course- I don't, so people don't want that though. They, right. they, they just care about latency, right? They just wanna make sure that they can get their, you know, their, um, if you're sending a downlink packet to turn off a pipe, right? Uh, when the water leak is detected, they just need to get there in 250 milliseconds. Um, yep. there, there are questions around, you know, um, are you storing my data on the blockchain? Is it private? Is it secure? And the obviously answers to those are, are no. Like we're, we don't touch your data, it's all yours. But uh, no, it's more about it's more about latency and expectations around like quality of service. I get a lot of questions from people about competing networks and Amazon Sidewalk. Do, does that stuff yeah. come up a lot? It does. So Amazon's kind of confusing in their strategy because they have two sort of, uh, there's two LoRaWAN, as far as we can tell, two LoRaWAN products. So there's 
Sidewalk, which is their sort of Helium-ish competitor, right? Uh, that uses devices that are sold through products like Ring and that um, definitely has a LoRa module, may not use LoRaWAN, but probably will at some point soon, right? So that's Sidewalk. Um, and, you know, we don't have any good data on this, but anecdotally, people are turning it off, right? They're opting out of the, the idea that like your Ring camera should be a, a router for some neighborhood Amazon device. Um, and then there's something called, uh, I think it's sale, sale lock, sale something, which is, um, uh, which is their hosted LoRaWAN network server running on AWS. So basically, um, you know, in the Helium network now we have router, um, which is our LoRaWAN network infrastructure. And so they have the equivalent of that with, you know, probably a LoRaWAN, whatever, spec compliant LNS, LoRaWAN network server, uh, that they just expose over an API. So, um, th those are. So the two things that they offer. Um, I mean, the uh, when we think about them, we see them sort of competitively. I, I think we've probably seen them two or three times uh, in like last three or four months in large company competitive conversations. Um, ultimately, I think that those guys looking at LoRaWAN is really good for the space. Um, and so it doesn't really concern us too much. When you talk about the differences between Helium and Amazon Sidewalk, which I've definitely covered a couple of times before on this podcast, one thing that I look at personally is the fact that Sidewalk seems to be more focused on BLE and less on LoRa. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. like more of a, more fitting to use cases such as I need to turn on my smart light and I need it to react with super low latency. Are there are a lot of the customers you talk to looking for that ultra low latency? And do you see the LoRaWAN spec evolving to provide that, especially on the like the uplink side or the downlink side, for example? Um, yeah, so we're still guiding customers to only use the, the network for things that are um, what's probably most often called like soft real time. So um, let me see if I can give an example by, by talking about the opposite. So a hard real time system, for example, might be something where uh, like a train switching infrastructure, right? Uh, where you need train tracks to switch over to the other side to direct the train and the other information. And that's probably commanded by some, some you know, wireless link. Um, you don't want to use Helium for that, right? You don't want to use LoRaWAN for that. Um, you know, you probably are scared to use cellular for that. And you've got some very robust sort of um, specifically built cellular based infrastructure for that. Um, soft real time systems are things where you can tolerate some lag and lag is not like, you know, many seconds. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, it typically takes 250 milliseconds. If it takes 425, you don't really care so much. Um, so we're still guiding customers to, to do that. Um, I think maybe in the future, we might be more comfortable with that sort of hard real time stuff. Um, I do know that the LoRaWAN um, uh, spec is evolving to make downlink more reliable. Um, but yeah, that's the state of it at this point. And as for downlink, just to explain it a little bit to people, a LoRaWAN device can't receive a downlink without having sent an uplink first, correct? Uh, technically, that's not right. So, um, but, but that's mostly how it works. So in LoRaWAN, you have three classes of devices. You've got LoRaWAN class A, class B, and class C. Uh, class A devices are the predominant deployed class of device out there. I don't have good data on it, but I would argue that it's 90X percent of devices are class A devices. And these are like the fire and forget sort of devices that send data once every 10 seconds, once every minute, once every hour, um, and are meant to run completely on battery for as long as possible. Um, but with every uplink, you've got two downlink windows. Uh, it's called RX1 and RX2, defined in the spec. And so the device, once it sends a packet, is supposed to listen for these downlinks for a certain period of time. I think it's 
it's in the hundreds of milliseconds maybe. Um, and so uh, at that point, you can send a message down to the device and tell it to do something or wait for another message at some point in the future. But yes, generally you cannot, excuse me, get a downlink message uh, without sending an uplink. Now with class C devices, uh, you can do that. Uh, I believe class C, I might be class B. One of, one of the two basically specifies that you're, you're basically turning the radio on at all times. And so with the radio on at all times, you can listen for packets coming in. The problem with that is it sort of violates what Laura is really good for, which is things operating on batteries in the field for, for a long time. Um, but if you have something that's, um, because the, the radio will suck the, the battery like down to zero and sort of crush your consumption. Um, that said, if you have a, a use case where you're plugging something into battery um, and, uh, and it only sends a small amount of data, LoRaWAN is still great for that. Uh, actually, back to that customer I talked to this morning, they put um, something that sits on the battery in a vehicle, right? So it gets power from um, a small vehicle and then can transmit and receive at will. But it is a class A device because they don't actually need like persistent downlinks. Okay, so like the type of uh, device that would be appropriate for the Helium network is something more like a class A device generally. Uh, does the network support class C devices? Um, we uh, are looking at it internally. It'll be the sort of thing where um, we would need a large customer to sort of compel us to sort of add class C support. Uh, I think we'll do it relatively soon, um, where soon is like maybe you know, six months or so. Uh, but at this point, we don't actually support it. Um, and again, I, um, it's kind of like a unicorn <laughs> in the lower WAN world. There's not a ton of it out there, although it gets talked about quite a bit. Yeah, and, and from my understanding, the best use case for that would be something like a smart light bulb where it's looking yeah. to receive a packet. I know there are like regulations around duty cycle in the e EU and just like how long essentially uh, you can transmit in a given hour that mm -hmm. exists in the US too. I know I, I don't have, you know, all the exact numbers in my head or anything, but I, that limits the downlink capability for application. Like, so that limits the ability to build applications such as smart light bulbs say that class C were supported or does it not? Um, it may, uh, I, I would have to go back and look at the spec. I'm not intimately familiar with how the duty cycle impacts the downlink requirements. I mean, but light bulbs are hard because, you know, imagine walking through your house, flipping a light switch and then waiting a second and a half right. to turn on. You know, it doesn't seem like that much in the moment, but it would be incredibly tilting over time. Like you just flip your switch and then uh, you have to wait, you know, 1500 milliseconds and then it, it turns on. So yeah, uh, I don't think, but to, back to your, your original sort of assertion, um, I think that when you're looking at something like sidewalk, they're probably catering to that a bit more, right? You're inside a house, you've got some sort of, um, you know, node that acts as like a, um, a coordinator almost that probably has a lower radio on it and then a bunch of BLE and Wi-Fi. Um, and then, you know, you're using that to sort of do point to point inside the home to do things that are sort of closer to hard real time. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at drawing all these comparisons yeah. is essentially it, it seems that sidewalk is more suited to those hard real time cases and mm -hmm. helium is more suited to soft real time. Not only just soft real time, but cases that need wide coverage outside of the home because sidewalk is going to mostly exist inside the home. So that's when okay. people ask me yep. about that, which is frequently I normally say, well, I don't really view Sidewalk and Helium as direct competitors other than the idea that, or the fact that Amazon Sidewalk has LoRa in it and That's is adopting right. yeah, and LoRaWAN. Of, yeah. and think about the difference between like someone deploying uh, like a Sidewalk enabled device versus someone in the Helium network deploying a gateway or a hotspot rather, right? Um, you know, with a Sidewalk device, it's inside the house. It doesn't have an external antenna. It's probably, you know, under a desk or something or maybe on top of a table, but it's in the middle of the home, nowhere near a window. 
um, compared with someone putting up a hotspot, right? Worst case scenario, you're on the second floor in a window, right? More and more, it's like 10 feet up on top of a roof or on a tower with a, a, you know, a few extra dB antenna. So yeah, entirely different um, use cases that they cater to. So what are the main use cases that you're seeing these days? Is there a main category that's dominating? Because I know a lot of people like to look for the killer app or whatever. Yeah. Um, I... uh, so we used to struggle with this a lot because so, so the, the you know, Healing Network is a platform, right? So it's, it's horizontal in nature. Um, and because of that, you have to sort of prove the vertical utility. Uh, and, you know, we've, Helium in the past has built at least one, well, I mean, most people know about tabs. If you're paying attention to Helium, you know about Helium tabs, which was, I don't have one with me, but it's a, you know, it's a, a LoRaWAN enabled tracking device. It has a nice slick uh, app and works with the Helium network. Um, we had built something before that called Pulse. If you Google around for Helium Pulse, you can uh, find details and some nice looking <laughs> Pete, our designer is going to kill me because people are looking for this. Uh, quite lovely. Uh, and there's some press releases too related to Helium Pulse and some of the funding that we raised, but it was a, um, a refrigeration monitoring platform for you know high value refrigerators. Um, and so that sort of speaks to, and, and it, it, we built a sensor, I think two sensors. Um, one was specifically to monitor temperature and then one was environmental. Uh, Helium, I think Helium Green and Helium Blue were the names. I might, I might be messing hmm. that up. Um, and it was relatively successful in the short amount of time that we were sort of out there pitching it. I did a lot of the pitching and ended up selling, you know, 10 sensor units per store into like restaurant chains, for, ex chains, for example. Um, and we built a nice dashboard and you got messaged when things went outside of a range that you cared about and got emails and reports. Um, and people liked it. The problem is we didn't, we didn't want to build the full product. We get like 65% of the way there and they just kind of got bored with it and went back to building platform features. So, um, you know, we've always struggled with how much we need to care about the killer app or the killer use case. Um, I would say that right now we care a lot less, or rather, we don't get worried that we won't have a definitive vertical uh, because we're seeing lots of momentum in many different verticals, which is a really good thing. Um, and so, you know, we're doing a lot of things internally to explode the number of devices on the platform generally, and we are focusing on some verticals, but we don't we don't spend too much time thinking about where we have to, you know, um, spend time on verticals, if that makes sense. So um, some recent examples for use cases, uh, which I've talked about publicly, um, uh, Victor Mousetraps, we're gonna do a webinar within a few weeks. I can talk about that publicly uh, because I've tweeted about it and sort of gets talked about. Um, so Victor's a company out of Lancaster. Actually back to our, <laughs> the story about the, the meetup. That's who I was out there to see uh, when I was out in Philadelphia. So they build a mousetrap. It's this glorious thing. It's you know this big for the mouse and this big for the rat. Um, and they're called um, uh, the type of animals of bull, B-O-L-E, term that I learned last year. So um, pest monitoring in the United States is a massive industry. I mean, globally, it's a massive industry, but pest monitoring in the U.S. is huge. Um, and so they sell to um, commercial pest, uh, you know, um, monitoring companies that will go in and put in their traps, and then they sort of do full monitoring programs on these things. Uh, and so with Helium and LoRaWAN, they built a LoRaWAN connected trap. It talks to the network. Uh, it only sends a couple packets a day at the most. And it's just, it's perfect, right? You get a, a message on your phone via your app that you have to go and service a trap and, and it's done. It just levels the economics for uh, what is traditionally like a very labor intensive thing where you go and lay traps and you come back every couple of days or every week or so and you check it out. And most of the time there's nothing there, but if there happens to be, um, you have to clear it out. And then, you know, it just costs a lot of money and it's a pain to do. Um, yeah, just so to interject here, because I, I, I was talking to someone recently about smart uh meters for 
like electricity and water, or I guess they're mainly water meters. But right back in the day, you had to come and have a person read the meter on each home individually. And then they yeah. switched to now they now what they do is they drive by in a car with a radio and the radio reads each meter as it drives by the house. So yeah. I feel yeah. like this is like the perfect application for helium. You could get rid There's, of the labor. Yeah, I mean, that's a theme in a lot of these deployments. Another hilarious and probably effective fix for that same uh, meter reading situation, by the way, is, uh, that I've heard from one uh, large institution was to uh, put a Raspberry Pi based camera on the outside of it and then just send pictures <laughs> periodically of the actual uh, readout oh, of the meter itself. God. Uh, <laughs> Why? I mean, I mean, but, but it speaks to the ridiculousness of, of how much money it is to send somebody around to actually look at a meter, right? If it's yeah. cheaper to build a Raspberry Pi based camera and send photos over cellular, it's got to be a huge amount of money to send somebody in a truck to look at these things every couple of weeks. Um, right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I'm a huge fan of the mousetrap um uh, application and what's so um what's really cool about the platform or the helium network and hosts like yourself operating hotspots is that we've built uh sort of accidentally this very dedicated channel for people who understand that um you know the network succeeds more likely if the network gets used right so what we're starting to do is actually um uh make it easier for people to to deploy these sensors on the coverage that they've created on the coverage that their their sort of infrastructure has created so you'll see us um like i said in a couple of weeks we'll probably um do uh a sale of the traps through one of our um distributors um parley labs who i'm sure you know um and you know, we did this with early a few uh weeks ago where we did a, a webinar with their cto um and co-founder and you know the community can buy early traps now or early um, um <laughs> air quality uh, sensors uh it's a super carbon sensor. traps and, yeah car <laughs> that would be cool um yeah so all these companies who are already committed to using LoRaWAN are starting to realize how fucking cool it is that there's tens of thousands of people operating the network uh and that potentially want to use a sensor and a service that uh that they offer so um, that's like um, we, we keep coming up with these things that you won't find in any other sort of LoRaWAN network um out there Another one is that like we have a dedicated team of uh, what we call BDRs or business development representatives who actually go out and do active outbound prospecting for network users. So if you're a customer of Helium's like um, Airly uh, or you know Victor, for example, um, we'll put together outbound campaigns and we'll like do cold calling for you going after a target and uh, and try to find you know the person that might buy your product and we'll just say, hey, hey, there you go. Like here's an opportunity for you and we'll hand it off. It's, wow. you won't find it anywhere else. It's super cool. Yeah, there's a huge alignment between all the network participants, which is something I think is uh, like pretty rare. But just the total alignment of the system seems to be very good from an incentives perspective. Yeah. Um, again, that I haven't really seen elsewhere. I'm curious how, like, how the growth has been over time, right? So you have these. I think Early is very cool. Love the Victor Mousetrap. Um, definitely seen you guys have a steady stream of new partner announcements coming out but like compared to a year ago versus six months ago versus today like how many new potential customers are you talking to like per week yeah so we don't really share those numbers publicly um but you know what i can say anecdotally is that uh a year ago we had one person uh that was doing full-time sort of outbound uh and fielding inbound requests for sales uh, we now, and, and they had a lot of work to do, but they weren't totally overloaded. 
Um, we have, I think, five people now that do that internally, um, and they are crushed, right? They have no time left wow. on, their, on their schedules. Um, yeah, another another really interesting thing that we're um, that we're doing. Actually, I think we're going to do the first one of these next week for a large. Um, uh, they, this is <laughs> they started to deploy coverage in a European country, um, Germany, and they are doing so on assets that they own and operate. And so they're now moving into um, providing solutions on top of the coverage that they're that they're deploying. Um, and so what we're doing is we're putting together like a vendor showcase for these guys where uh, over the course of two weeks, we're gonna put, I think 10 or 12 network partners in front of them, people who have sensors um, that, and solutions that are using the, the network and say, hey, listen, you know, these guys have already fully integrated with us. Um, their solution is super interesting for your, your use cases. And I think they care um, about like, you know, residential and commercial real estate and energy monitoring, and then maybe one other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's it's uh, really compelling, right? They get in like three hours of their time, they get to look at a bunch of different solutions, and then probably pick a handful to pilot, if not put in, into production. So, anyways, yeah, we're we're overloaded um, uh, on the on the inbound stuff, and we're seeing a lot of people transition to Helium from networks like um, you know the Things Industries and and Senate and um, and Machine Q uh, and a handful in Europe, for example. Yeah, especially when you look at the Things Network, which is. I think the only one that's really available in the U.S. in terms of LoRaWAN. I know that Senate is Senate U.S. as well. They are, yeah. Senate, I would, I think, actually, Senate does more business in the U.S. than the Things Network. Do you see a lot of people switch? Like, what are the main reasons you see people switching? For example, when I look at the Things Network, I think uh, it's been a while since I've looked at it, but it was like an enterprise package, basically, that they have, and it's like a mm-hmm. they have minimums, and it's a per device cost, and it's just like insanely expensive compared to Helium. And I'm like, why does anyone buy this? when you know there's something so much cheaper out there is that do you see people just like flocking due to due to cost or due to ease of use like what's the main reason yeah um so ease of use less so than cost um for a while we were playing catch up against the the things network so things network and things industries are sort of two different offerings from the same company um ttn and tti for short ttn is their sort of um public open network server and TTI is their uh, private LoRaWAN network offering, essentially. Like if you switch over to TTI, you sort of, um, you have private LoRaWAN infrastructure that they help you manage. Um, uh, we were playing catch up for a while versus them on their console, for example. They had a really great um, uh, console. And, um, you know, we learned a lot from, from that product and have built a lot of features into our product um, that they had. And then we've extended on it. And now I think we're at parity, if not, not better than what they've had. Um, but we're, you know, there in the United States, I think, I mean, this sort of happened as we started, started to come up, but they've, they've stopped sort of, um, it seems like they've stopped caring about the stability of their network in the U.S. So mm-hmm. that plus, um, I, we're seeing sort of discussions on discussion boards and people that come and talk to us. Um, they made some interesting changes to their product that sort of um, forced people to do some migrations to their deployments that people were not happy about. Uh, and so they're losing some some customers and users from that. I mean, um, if you shipped any more than a single device in production, you you understand that um, the second something works, you do not want to touch it. You want to change nothing. Or you've got a hardware device in the field that's sending data reliably. Um, you don't want to mess with it at all. And um, they, I think, made some changes to their API in the way that they did um, some processing that people sort of were caught off guard by and had to make some transitions. And I, I do think they're trying to actively migrate people to sort of higher paid plans. We've had, I think, at least... Two or three people in the last two months alone, uh, enterprises come to us saying, "Hey, you know, I'm not happy about the pricing changes with TTI. What do you guys look like?" 
Um, so, so yeah, um, that would be the primary difference between TTM, TTI and Helium. Um, with Senate, Senate sort of positions himself as the enterprise LoRaWAN infrastructure provider. Um, we've had some people come to us from Senate, um, but I think of all the, the, the three I mentioned, so TTM, Senate, and MachineQ, Senate tends to be the most reliable. Um, and they're carving out like a little enterprise niche for them. I will say that uh, I think we've irked them enough where in the last month they've published a white paper talking about the dangers of decentralized networks, uh, which pleases us to no end because it means that they're, oh they're, having, they're having trouble closing business because Helium is, uh, is making it hard. Again, it, it, it makes me very happy. So um, yeah, and then MachineQ is another one. MachineQ is a Comcast company that uh, um, seems to be a bit wayward of late. Uh, I just talked to a company this morning who's transitioning to Helium from MachineQ. Um, their business model uh, is based around the idea that you pay per gateway. So uh, you get any amount of backhaul or any amount of devices you want, um, any amount of traffic from those devices, but you pay um, hardware upfront for the gateway and then like some high amount of money per gateway. It's like 40 or hundred bucks per gateway per month. Um, and yeah, it's not cheap. In addition to that, they do something ridiculous, which is they'll sell you, you have to buy a gateway to, to use their network. Um, and you cannot use that gateway on another network. Like it's, it's completely locked down, um, to the point where, you know, people have tried to wipe firm reload it and it just doesn't happen. Like it's, it's third, like if you don't use a 500 or $600 gateway on machine key, you can't use it at all. It's like a, a paperweight you have to throw it away. Um, and so, you know, uh, we were, People are coming over to us from Machine Q. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's good. We're, we're starting to see a huge influx from existing LoRaWAN network providers. And on top of that, lots of new companies building LoRaWAN devices as, um, as the network matures and we start to show that coverage is real and that you don't have to worry about there not being coverage in the city or you can build it out easily enough if you need to. That Machine Q implementation sounds so Comcast. Like there's only one yeah. word to describe that and it is Comcast. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, if, if you look at the Helium hotspot, right, that's only usable in the Helium network. However, the people buying those specifically are trying to create coverage, right? Um, but the fact that you'd have to, like you buy a completely locked, TTN, by the way, is the same thing. Um, so if you buy one of the TTN manufactured community gateways, and I don't think there's that many out there, uh, but we've talked to enough people trying to transition from that to Helium to know that you can't upgrade it. Right? They, they run some firmware that can't be changed. Uh, most of TTN is third-party manufacturers like multi, uh, Multitech and Techtelic and, and those guys in Curlink, and those can be upgraded through on Helium. Uh, but no, it's, it's fucking ridiculous. It's absurd. When you talk about coverage, like what is the coverage currently of the Helium network compared to some of these providers? Do they have like really nationwide coverage? Are they dense in certain areas? Do you, would, do you say Helium's coverage would compete with them at this point? Yeah. Oh, we we are far superior, um, and also our coverage is very public. Like you can see it. You can go to Explorer and look at the coverage. You can go to Mappers and look at the coverage. Um, TTN has some public coverage stats. Um, I think their gateways deployed number is a little bit ambitious. Um, we've seen numbers that you know are like thirty or forty percent of what they actually publicly um, sort of put out there. Uh, Senate again, like they create really good coverage when they need it, but they tend to do it in very specific clusters, right? So they'll get a customer that's like a utility in a couple of states and they need to cover like 30% of, you know, some chunk of land and they go deploy, uh, you know, like, um, like a multi-tech AP conduit, you know, uh, 16 channel outdoor gateways or Cisco 64 channel, like crazy beast gateways. And they create really good coverage, but it's very, again, it's, it's for a constrained sort of geography. Uh, but no, I mean, we're in, I think 60 countries, 3,200 cities, somebody who, 
knows a lot about networks recently told us that we have the largest contiguous wireless network in the world, um, which is fun to think about. Um, mm -hmm. I think it. I think the argument sort of falls over a bit because you can't put a lower device. Um, you can't use the same lower WAN device in the United States that you can in Europe, for example, because they require different modules and sort of different circuitry. Um, but I think in spirit, it's right. I mean, like, you know, the Helium network exists in 60 different countries. It's ridiculous. Yeah, one thing that I've been really curious to see, I know someone internally was working on it at some point. I don't know if it got ditched, but is essentially the heat map based coverage map based on witness data so that you can oh. create actual, uh, you know, like blobs of coverage, kind of like the carriers pay millions of people to go out and do kind of like the mappers are doing for free right now on a volunteer basis, but based on the blockchain witness data. Yeah, um, Kent on my team probably was the person doing that. Um, and I don't know what the status of it is, but he's, he's a beast. He'll probably produce it pretty soon. Uh, so uh, yeah, I would, uh, that, that, that would, he, so he's, he's evolving mappers in a pretty aggressive way to go from just, like you said, um, just you know, um, the mapper sensor itself to things like witness data from, from the blockchain. So yeah, and, and that's just another sort of thing that um, uh, that the Helium network does that, you know, again, traditionally costs many billions of dollars to do. You, you, you don't map infrastructure um, uh, like the cellular, on the cellular networks. Now, we, we do, you know, we do understand there's some shortcomings to our approach, and so we're sort of adapting that. So one of the things that we're doing, um, I think Coco and the team are working on this in the mobile app is um, when you deploy hotspot for the first time, um, you know, we will enable you to basically send packets out automatically, right, using the mobile app. To, to say like, hey, like, can any other hotspots hear this thing? Instead of like jumping into Discord and start asking questions about, you know, how do I optimize my antenna? Like we should just give you the tool to send a couple packets um, and maybe cost a data credit or two um, to, to figure out exactly what kind of coverage you're creating. So, um, you know, cellular networks do this. Like they don't put up a, um, a base station without knowing exactly what it can talk to and how it's optimized. And so we need to get a little bit better about that for sure. Yeah, I'd love to see those coverage maps come to life. I think it's going to be one thing I really want to see is the percentage population covered, because this is like the metric that all the cellular networks go by. They're like, we cover 98% of US population. And the thing is, the data is all there, right? Like you yeah. can create the coverage heat map on witness data, and you can get population data for every zip code in the country, and obviously for other countries as well. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea. What that number would be right now but uh i'm sure we can come up with a good commercial <laughs> i think it would be pretty impressive i mean in major u.s cities we've got great coverage like i would say chicago is fully covered la is definitely fully probably like 90 percent covered yeah i yeah. mean san francisco not a huge city but definitely covered philadelphia's got pretty good coverage at this point um, new york city oh my god uh, new york city yeah like fully fully yeah, I mean, covered I mean, we're definitely well into the hundreds of millions i think for individuals yeah for sure yeah. Which is, that's a staggering stat. I mean, it would be great to create a historical sort of trend line of percentage of population covered. I think that would be like the ultimate, you know, because the ultimate goal is 100%. And so, like, how quickly can we get to 100%? How quickly can we get to 20 or 30% of, you know, single countries and of the world, I think would be an amazing, incredible stat to look at. And so if you guys aren't building that internally, I'll, I'll task someone, I'll, I'll try to get someone to do that. Yeah, you should. I'll, I'll relay that to Emily, but... Um... Yeah, that'd be super cool. Hmm. So and on the topic of coverage and customers, I know that these 
sort of more corporate networks are able to offer SLAs to their customers and the Helium network. Yeah. I mean, we have, I think we have very good redundancy in cities, right? Like, as I said, even a year ago, I could get five hotspots to hear me in a spot in Philly. Nowadays, mm -hmm. if I walk through, I'm sure I'll get like multiple X, you know, five to 20 X redundancy based on yeah. where I'm standing. But how, how are the customers thinking about reliability and, and what, what's your pitch to them based on reliability? Yeah. So, you know, if you're building something on a LoRaWAN network, you're already sort of okay with the idea that, um, you know, you're sending data that could be a bit lossy, right? That, um, you know, might take more than one try to sort of transmit. Um, so, so from that sort of mental model, it gets a lot easier because uh, again, you've already decided that you're not going to use cellular. You don't have to, um, uh, you're not going to use that link. Um, we do internally have an SLA that we offer customers um, around um, uh, quality of service. It's, it's constructed more similarly to how AWS, for example, does uptime, right? So if you uh, are using AWS and there's like 3% downtime or something, they'll give you some amount of credit against the amount that you spent. Um, and we'll do the same thing internally. Uh, but more and more what we're seeing, again, is customers who are, who are okay with the idea that they're going to deploy some amount of coverage to sort of, you know, make uh, what they have a little bit better. Um, because on the enterprise level, people were generally on board with this as it was. If they're, so again, they're committed to LoRa, I'm an enterprise, I'm going to deploy a LoRaWAN network, I'm going to have to buy some hardware. Um, in a lot of cases now, um, you don't have to deploy hardware to create coverage, or you have to deploy a lot less than you thought you would. So people are generally okay with that because there's already a massive capital uh, savings there versus what they had planned to spend with somebody else like Senator Machine Q or, or TTN, for example. So um, yeah, it's evolving. We also, we also uh, you know, one example of a good, uh, really interesting use case uh, that we just brought on, I think we, they officially signed up last week. Uh, it's not public yet, so I won't share their name, um, but they're, they operate uh, hundreds, uh, I think thousands of trucks in the Northeast that, that go between uh, the Boston area and Washington DC and they service like commercial real estate buildings and restaurants and they do things like clean linens, for example. Um, and their, their CEO is all in on Helium. Um, he had a proposal on his table from one of the major MNOs to do like cellular backtracking for trucks. And they had done a pilot with Helium. And, you know, he looked at the coverage and said, yeah, like, we're missing some gaps here, you know, driving through Providence, Rhode Island. You know, there's some spots where I don't have a, a packet from my truck, um, but I'll put up some more hotspots and, I'll, you know, I primarily care about knowing when something left the distribution facility and ended at a customer and conversely when they left the customer and got back to my facility. Um, if the data shows up in the middle, which more and more it will over time, I can live with that, right? So, so um, you know, we're, some of our customers are, are more flexible. Um, they're a lot, they're, they're required to be a lot less flexible than they used to be, if that makes sense. Um, you know, they're, they're, um, the use cases are adapting to suit the network. At the same time, the, the coverage is being, like every day is being filled in in different areas. So um, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think what's so funny and awesome is that if they're signing up with MachineQ or TTN and, and buying all these proprietary hardware devices, it's like a significant capital expenditure. Meanwhile, on the Helium side, you've got the Helium hotspots now manufactured by at least four different manufacturers, which are going down in price over time, right? We hope to see light hotspots under $150 by the end of the year. Yeah. And so not only does it go down over time, like you could imagine seeing a 50 or $100 hotspot eventually, mm -hmm. but it actually pays you to operate it. So 
I don't know how a business, from a business perspective, if the functionality is equal or better, if the ease of use and ease of access is equal or better, if the cost of using the network is equal or better, or better. And if you can also piggyback on this public coverage in many of the areas you're ser serving and you want to build private coverage, I mean, you essentially are like partially funding your own business by deploying hotspots along the way. Um, and that's just crazy to think about. Uh, you know, how could a company look at, you know, oh, I need to deploy 10 of these really high power gateways at $600 pop, it's going to cost me $6,000 versus, oh, I only have to deploy three out of 10 because there's already coverage in most of my areas. And it's only mm -hmm. going to cost me $1,000 to buy the three. And, you know, they're going to earn me back some um, number of HNT, which I can trade back to eventually, hopefully get back my initial investment. Like, yeah, uh, it's just like a very tough sell on the, on the, for the other corporate uh, providers. Yeah, I think that's mostly right. I will say that some situations do require, you know, outdoor sort of ruggedized larger, you know, antennas, right? Where you're going to be spending five hundred to a thousand dollars, maybe more than that, plus some amount of labor to sort of deploy this thing. Um, and I, I, you know, I will um, concede that a lot of these deployments do require sort of more um, traditional coverage. But again, it, it all contributes to the, the, the growth of the network, right? Everybody gets to use this coverage as it gets deployed. Um, I have. <laughs> Uh, uh, we used to get a lot of questions from enterprises that were like, oh, this is really interesting, but like, I can make my coverage private, right? Like you guys can turn it off and make sure that, uh, that um, nobody else can use this. And the answer is, well, no, we can't. And they said, but, but you can, right? I'm like, no, we can't, man. I mean, you know, uh, you know, if you don't want to use the network, we'll be sad, but we understand it. But hey, this is a public network, you're creating coverage for yourself. And, you know, the, the blockchain is sort of rewarding you with, with H&D for doing that. Um, and a few people have said, oh, not for me, but most of them sort of come around to the idea. The funniest sort of thing is when people ask for exclusivity, um, which is a pretty common thing for enterprises to do, um, where they say like, you know, we'd like to be the only, I don't know, um, widget manufacturer that does X on the Helium network. Like, can, can you guys, we're gonna put 200,000 devices on the network this year, we'd like some exclusivity. Um, and my response is typically like, firstly, uh, we can't, it's an open network, anybody can use it as long as you have a data credit to send data and there's coverage, you can get on it. Um, but the really cool thing, and this company was considering rolling out like massive amounts of coverage. I said something like, um, think of it this way. You're worried about competition. Um, if you go and deploy a bunch of network coverage as part of your application and your customers end up, or your com competitors end up using the network coverage that you've built, they're going to be paying you to yeah. use the network. And the guy was like, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> um, and so uh, it's, it's, yeah, there's so many aspects to this that you don't get any, anywhere else. Like you don't get um, customers that invested in the success of the infrastructure that we're using. It's like entirely unique. When, you, when you're uh, doing all this like business development, well, first of all, I wanna, I wanna touch on something, a little nugget that you said there. You said that someone uh, was, you, you threw out the number 200,000 by the end of the year. Is that, was this a random number or, or are people actually uh, proposing things this big and this immediate? Uh, I mean, that was an actual number that that person suggested in, in the conversation for sure. I mean, we're dealing with customers and companies that are, you know, projecting, um, you know, this is part of the progression that we go from developers to small companies to, to bigger companies that sort of get on board as a network gets more reliable. Um, but, you know, if you're talking to an enterprise that's looking at doing maybe consumer device, um, I mean, they think in numbers of like, you know, five figures is low, right? It's a, a six or seven figure sort of engagement for them on, on a certain timeline. Um, so, you know, those conversations are pretty standard. Yeah. When, when you look at the amount of device usage on the network now, it's really slow. 
uh, it's very small, right? And, and I've always had this idea that there is going to be some just like incredible ramp up. Is that is that kind of what you see happening? Like, is it going to be sort of a, an all at once type thing where the uh, devices like a huge partner starts uh, deploying devices and then like the usage just skyrockets kind of overnight? Or is it going to be more of a slow burn with smaller partners coming in here and there? Yeah, uh, I'm going to butcher this phrase, but it's something like uh, it's very slow and then it's very fast. Like it's a trickle that a flood. Yeah. Um, so we're, mm -hmm. we're sort of transitioning from the trickle to the flood, I would say. Um, again, now the, the sort of inbound conversations that we get um, table stakes are people planning device deployments that are you know, tens of thousands and above. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the direction that we're going. When you're doing all this business development activity and you have your in-house team and you're offering people SLAs and you know, specific packages and help, you know, helping them do outbound and all this stuff, do you think of that as like a, a startup, like scrappy, like let's get the ball rolling, let's get some major momentum going type thing and then eventually this will sort of be rolling on its own? Or do you view that as this is gonna be a sustained push internally always and we're gonna continue expanding the team within Helium Inc and continue offering these services and SLAs and, and help? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I don't have a good answer for you. Uh, I can tell you that you know we still every day wake up like you know we're a paranoid startup that thinks that we could be out of business at any point right i mean we have plenty of money in the bank and we're not going anywhere but that's our mental our mental model right we um so we're, so you know our our if you look at the helium roadmap on on the site there's three areas where it's coverage it's devices and it's the the blockchain course or development um but you know, we are just scrapping and hustling and grinding to build as much coverage as we can and put as many devices on the network as, as quickly as possible um and the you know the 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 most impactful thing that we can do from a business development standpoint um, is to put devices on the network and prove its utility. So, I mean, um, and so, yeah, so offering customers, you know, and we do this for free, like it's not a paid thing, right? It's, it's hey, like you're part of the Helium network. Here's Marvin from our BD team. He's gonna call you and learn your messaging. And then our team is gonna do some outbound for you next week. Um, it's just something that we do for, for the partners because you know, we want them to succeed because the network grows bigger if they succeed. Um, and, and everybody sort of rides the wave. You know, you, you always have to start somewhere, right? With a startup. And I, I think, you know, from an outsider's perspective, you guys are well past the scrappy startup uh, stage because, you know, you've just got a lot of experienced people on the team constantly churning out, uh, you know, new products that are in production and stuff like that. But, you know, at the same time, I also see how success isn't guaranteed. And, you know, you've got to get a lot of wheels cranking. Like you can't just sit back and totally your thumbs, you know, there, there could be a, a competitor um, kind of going back to what we were talking about before with like Amazon sidewalk. And is there a competitor? Like, I think we talked about this uh, on episode three with uh, Tushar helium doesn't seem to have a fully direct competitor, like at all. You see it that way or. Uh, I would agree. Like there's no natural direct competitors. There's a handful. We've talked about them here. You know, the lower WAN network providers that are competing uh, with us to put devices on their, on their LoRaWAN network. Um, and then there's like some weird fly-by-night sort of wireless crypto mining things out there. You know, we won't even warrant mentions on this thing. I'll, I'll, I won't uh, mention it, I don't wanna get in trouble here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, there's no one who is sort of combining this innovative incentive mechanism with um, an actual useful wireless network it doesn't exist yeah that's that's the craziest part to me 
is that it's less crazy now. I mean, it's it the, the concept is less crazy now than it used to be. Is what I'm saying. Certainly. Um, yeah. But the fact that there hasn't been like a fork of the Helium blockchain yet with someone trying to do something. Well, I think part of the reason that that hasn't happened is just your sheer velocity, right? And and the the number of unsolved problems still, like for example, mm -hmm. you know, the chain struggling with the new hotspots coming online and then, you know, developing validators, which is like, we just spun up the test net and I'm sure we'll be in mainnet within a few weeks. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone who tries to fork the Helium blockchain right now is getting like this complete uh, fully working, fully scalable product. So, and, and like, if they have, if they want to build their own blockchain, it's going to be so much damn work to get started from scratch, even though they can use a lot of the lessons from Helium, you know, why wouldn't you just fork instead of, uh, I, don't, I just don't see a path for someone who wants to fork or, nor do I see a path for someone who wants to start from scratch and build their own hardware for Laura. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the hardware part is, uh, particularly hard because there's no hardware to be, to be had. It's completely gone, right? There's the, all the suppliers are, are completely tapped out of uh, LoRaWAN components. Um, you know, Helium certainly contributed to that. Plus the Helium blockchain is written in Erlang, right? There's only like 30 developers in the world who know how to write it anyways. So um, I mean, I'm joking, there's much more than that, but yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, we've discussed internally uh, what would happen if someone forked it and the, the potential to do so. Um, I think we sort of just sort of uh, I guess we'd smile a bit because it would it would confer some amount of sort of um, notoriety notoriety on us and and some success. But um, yeah, go ahead and fork it. Let's see what happens. I, I, it doesn't really worry me too much. It's an open challenge, Mark Phillips, twenty twenty one. Go and fork it and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I mean, I think we also have the intent. We have a ton of velocity from a, um, a sort of helium, Inc., but also community development perspective. I mean, Every day, more and more, we're starting to get more pull requests and contributions from people who aren't paid to work on this full time. And that's the vision, right? We're trying to make this a, a fully decentralized sort of development effort. But also the community momentum itself is just ridiculous, right? The, you know, the tens of thousands of, of people who are in Discord sort of um, like eating up every nugget of information that people are sort of sharing. And, you know, you see it with, you know, deploying hotspots, people who are just like so dedicated to expanding coverage and sort of educating people. Um, I mean, just like the validator testnet launch, which was what, two or three days ago, uh, the pace and sort of rapacity with which people jumped in and started hammering on, you know, the validator branch and firing up testnet nodes and, you know, reporting no, um, uh, issues and filing documentation and cutting PRs. It was just like, what? This is ridiculous. So, yeah, I mean, again, you, if you, you'll, you'll have a hard time assembling that um, on another network. Yeah, the validators were particularly incredible because I think within like less than 12 hours, we got to 50, like after the, <laughs> after the testnet launch. And that's not like, that's not like five people running 10 each. That's like 50 yeah. individuals who all like slurped up the documentation the second that it came out, fired up these different testnet nodes, like figured out what was going wrong with theirs. It was pretty smooth. I, I fired one up and it was, it was very smooth. So Kudos the first to the team one, on like right? an easy you had the, first one. The first I did. Experiment. I did fire up the first non-helium ink testnet <laughs> node, which I'm is a badge of honor. I will wear. I don't know who will care, but I'll wear it anyway. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's really remarkable. Like, and and we got to a hundred, I think, within twenty four hours. So yeah, and just like I noticed that if I post a link to something uh, in the Discord that like is a site that I own, and I just like watch the server logs. If I post a link in even like an obscure channel, there'll be eight clicks within like a minute <laughs> from people to just coming into it. And uh, yeah, I'm not 
I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's just like everyone I know in, in real life who's like uh, involved in Helium 2 is just like, even if they're not technical, they're so interested. They just want to, yeah. you know, they want to keep learning every single nugget. And I think if there's any driver for success, it's going to be that just like organic enthusiasm. It's just seemingly um, never ending. Speaking yeah, of enthusiasm, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, just to put a, a period, I guess, on that sentence, the part of this discussion, one of the coolest things is that we've built the, again, the world's largest public LoRaWAN network primarily, to date anyways, and this is changing, but primarily out of people who had no idea what LoRaWAN was, right? We built, we, we did it because we, we had, you know, there's a blockchain that incentivizes people to create coverage. Um, but more importantly, it's good coverage. Like it's very good wireless coverage. Like the, the proof of coverage mechanism and the changes to it, you know, HIP 15 and HIP 17 and sort of tweaks um, and scaling factors and things like that um, have resulted in very good LoRaWAN coverage created by people who did not know what LoRaWAN was, right? Um, additionally, we're, we're sort of introducing a huge, massive new crop of people to the idea that they can mine their own crypto, which is, you know, because I mean, you, you're active in a bunch of crypto networks, right? And you've, you've gone on and bought expensive hardware to mine things, right? This is, and you have to be reasonably technical to do it. This is an entirely different story, uh, which, is, which is remarkable. So yeah, just wanted to note that. Yep. Yeah. Most crypto mining is not accessible to your everyday folk. One thing that I really miss, I'm not going to lie, is the original Helium hotspot design. I kind of wish, like, would you guys ever open source that? I, I really guy? wish someone this was- This one here? Yeah, that one that you can't get anymore. The OG. That's what we call it, the OG. I love the OG um, hotspot. It's just the design yeah, is so good. It's very lovely. Yeah, it's right there. There it is too. Yeah. Um, I don't know. That's a question for Coco. You'd have to talk to her. We- uh, we get a lot of people who want to manufacture it, who come in and say, hey, can I can open source the plans or can we buy the license for design? Um, we've not done that. I don't know why we haven't done it. Um, but at this point, that's the state of things. Well, I'm looking, uh, once, lightweight, once light gateways uh, come out, I'm looking for you know the, the special edition, the SE. It's just going to be like a OG <laughs> Helium hotspot, limited batch, 1,000. And, we'll do uh, it as know, a... Uh... An NFT or something. An NFT, a fundraiser, whatever, whatever it is, it's going to be lit, <laughs> as the kids are saying. <laughs> so speaking of enthusiasm, what do you see happening in cities and municipalities that do have so many of these use cases, um, like you know the parking meters and the the utility meters and just so many things in cities that need to be tracked? Uh, what, what do you see yeah. happening in, there? Yeah, so you, you mentioned um, you know, parking meters. Uh, we just publicized a use case with a company called Nobel Systems uh, about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago, we did a webinar with them um, where they worked with uh, the city of, uh, some, some part of the city of Los Angeles, I think it was Huntington, um, and a LoRaWAN network provider, or a LoRaWAN sensor provider rather called um, PlacePod to do um, uh, parking spot monitoring. Uh, so they drill a hole in the ground and they put this um, uh, very, slick sensor in the ground and it monitors the presence of a car metal technically above it using a, i think it's a sonar sensor um, and that was you know an initiative that was driven from the the top down in the city to basically streamline how they're doing sensor uh, or um, monitoring for uh, parking spots and so that deployment was on the smaller side i think it was 1500 or 1400 sensors on day one and they've got like a ton of, of um, plans to expand uh in that in that municipality based on the success of the program. Um, and so we're starting to see this interesting trend uh, in cities specifically where uh, 
the sort of technical leadership inside of a city, so someone who's like a chief innovation officer or a chief technology officer, um, is understanding that uh, the network can, the Helium network and, and like a LoRaWAN network, specifically Helium, um, can be built very quickly for low cost to provide sort of this, um, this omnipresent infrastructure for IoT. Um, and you can do some really interesting things when you get the, uh, the, the city involved in deploying coverage um, so we haven't talked much about this publicly and we, we probably won't for a while, but um, there's a, a few interesting initiatives afoot to, again, from, from at, the, at the leadership level in a city um, to deploy human coverage, use that coverage for uh, sensing, and then uh, use the output of that coverage, which would be HNT, to uh, subsidize the cost of services for lower income um, housing. Uh, so. Uh, I'm particularly excited about that. Like I said, there's nothing public out there on just yet, um, but I suspect we'll talk about it relatively soon. Um, but that's a super, super cool story. I'm very excited about that. I love that. That's the exact type of thing I love to see the most. I think we definitely democratizing access, but also democratizing the benefit uh, by creating that access is just like huge. And there's no like, there's no big barrier for, for lower income folks uh, to host a hotspot uh, if they have access to internet. And so if you can give them internet and subsidize that, um, you can also give them an opportunity to, you know, earn a little bit of extra income on the side. I think that's very cool. Um, so we've, we've talked, we've been really positive in this conversation. Uh, you know, there's a lot of positive stuff going on. And, you know, we've talked a little bit of uh, about downsides and whatnot, but like what, what are, the, what's like the biggest challenge that you see for Helium in the next year and then the next five years? Um, I mean, the biggest challenge right now is, is coverage, uh, specifically the hardware to create coverage. Um, it's just, it's, you know, uh, we're still growing at a super fast rate. I don't know what the, we have a, an internal metric around number of days for the next 1000 units to come online. That makes sense. Mm. So um, you know, we go from 10 to 11, 11 to 12. Um, and I don't remember the number off the top of my head. It's very fast. Um, the last jump, right, from 18 to 19, I think was the slowest uh, because, you know, the, the supply chain for these manufacturers has been so backed up. Um, and so that doesn't make us happy, right? You know, again, even though it's probably the fastest growth of any of these networks out there, it still is well beyond or well, well, well behind what we want it to be. Um, so that's the biggest challenge right now for us. And that'll probably be a challenge for, I would say, the next two to three months, four months. Um, but now with uh, four new manufacturers and a handful more that are about to submit applications actually um, for HIP-19 um, and the, you know, the, the light hotspots, um, we should relieve the supply pressure. Um, we're also gonna do some stuff to enable so with, with HIP-19, uh, you're required to um, be able to either run the miner locally or soon just run the, the new packet forwarder. But most importantly, you have to be able to do encryption on the, on the hotspot to, do, to generate keys and store keys that are used as part of the, the blockchain. Um, and uh, we are, um, manufacturers are, are adding uh, encryption capabilities to their products specifically to, to suit the needs of the network because they understand that people are, are trying to build coverage so fast and the use cases are, are growing very quickly. So um, I, uh, I anticipate that um, that'll help us grow, but we are actually gonna do some work to um, have what looks like, um, you probably remember that the DIY alpha code program where people could upload or onboard you know, non-secured gateways essentially as, as full minor hotspots. Um, we're not gonna bring that back, but we are going to do um, 
uh, we're gonna let people basically route packets and earn HMT for packet routing um, uh, with uh, non-ECC'd gateways, if that makes sense. So that should help. Um, we'll be talking more about that in the couple, next couple of weeks. Um, I would say the other challenge that we have is uh, we have to make sure that the incentives are aligned to keep the network growing. That's that's like a huge thing that we think about all the time. Um, you know, um, HNT is produced at some fixed rate. You know, people know exactly where it goes. Um, right now, it's you know thirty percent to packet transfer, thirty percent to to POC infrastructure, and then you know thirty percent to the sort of investor HST pool. Um, you know how that uh, sort of changes over time if it has to um, to make sure that people are still incentivized to create coverage. That's a thing that, that we sort of think about uh, quite a bit. So I would say those are the two things um, that are are top of mind in terms of challenges. Well, it seems like uh, lots of positives and, and few negatives, but there are constantly challenges. Like we never know what the next challenge is going to be. I don't think anyone mm -hmm. was really foreseeing the manufacturing delays. The first helium hotspot was like relatively on time, but then like. The second revision of the helium hotspot was like six months late and like yeah. we've all the whole community has already been through this once before and you know we're just like going <laughs> through it again and yeah, like we I mean, want to get to a point where that doesn't happen yeah. anymore i mean what should happen is someone decides that they want to hotspot on a tuesday and it shows up on a friday i mean that's that's what should happen um and we'll get there soon enough i mean you know it, it pains us every day right yeah you know, uh, there are a handful of manufacturers now in the ecosystem that have the ability to produce um, just you know tens of thousands of units a month, right? To do that, so um, I think we'll get there. I don't know when, but we'll get there. Do you have a sort of just for fun a prediction, a number of hotspots prediction for the end of twenty twenty one? I'll throw mine out there first, just so you don't feel all the pressure in the world. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be between a hundred and a hundred fifty thousand. Oh, I think you're low, my friend. I think you're low. I'll, I will bet you one HNT that uh, that we see. Oh God, I can't afford this bet. <laughs> more than one. I think I think we see one fifty pretty pretty easily. If the supply if the supply issues get alleviated, uh, I mean, I have knowledge of you know what's been purchased from the manufacturers already. I mean, it's 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 significant, right? So if the supply issues get alleviated, I think um, I, I can tell you that the helium internal projection is much higher than one fifty. Well, Mark, thanks so much for joining this podcast. Really good to hear that, you know, things are, are, are going well and it just are like, you know, exploding in terms of uh, growth. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, I, I never miss an opportunity to sort of talk about the, uh, the BD side of the equation over here. Um, yeah, things are moving in the right direction. There's a ton of momentum. And uh, we, we just, uh, you know, we, we wake up every day. Um, I mean, I've been here for seven years, right? I, I wake up still every day remarkably excited to, to, to come and build this thing out. Um, the more that we grow the community, the more that we grow our customer base, um, the more momentum we pick up, the more I want to do this. And everybody at the team feels entirely the same way. So yeah, thanks for having me on. That was a blast. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to be a part of it. And yeah, hopefully we'll uh, get you on here maybe in six months or a year and we'll do the recap, see how things work. Yeah, we can. We can do a bit of a retrospective. Um, and yeah, thank you, by the way, for all the work that you're putting in to grow the community and, and uh, you know, building tools and helping people to play coverage. It's been an incredibly positive, positive impact. That's fantastic. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I feel the same energy that everyone else does. I feel the same urgency. You know, the network just really does feel like this grand collective thing. And I'm sure it's like how people felt in the early days of open source software. Well, and especially now, I mean, open source is like completely taken over. It's just kind of magical that, you know, all us strangers can come together in this wild time where we can't even go outside. We can make this network happen. 
that's very cool. Do you remember the, I know we're running over here, but do you remember the first time you and I spoke in Slack? Do you remember that? Slack I can't days say I do. Before we transitioned. Slack days, yeah. Yeah, before, uh, if I recall correctly, uh, you messaged me and I, I, you're like, hey, uh, I want to buy some hotspots, but they're expensive. Can I get a discount? I'm like, no. You can't oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I think you asked me two or three more times and I said something like, all right, here's what I'll do for you. Uh, you were going to buy, you know, five or something or 10. And I said, I'll give you some small discount, but I'll also send you a free, two free development boards. And all I ask is that you give a talk on it in the future. And oh my gosh, that. that's right. Yeah. I forgot. A, I forgot that that was the origin of the, uh, wow. I thought I was just like a self-motivated little developer, but yeah, you're right. You totally got <laughs> me with the incentives. It's proven at this point that you don't need incentives for people to contribute, right? Just like being part yeah. of uh, this thing is, is like incentive enough. So all really, really excited. Thanks so much again for your time. I'll talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Simon. Take care.